Welcome. You're listening to the podcast Outlander Soul, searching for the soul of Outlander. With me, Reverend Terry Menifee Gow. And me, Dr. Jamie Reeves. As always, be aware, there are spoilers ahead. Okay, so we're back. Episode 10. We've reached double digits. We have. (laughs) Well, um, shall we start out this episode, um, first of all, with a bit of listener feedback, and then we'll kind of launch into what we're talking about today and and go from there? We are talking about call today, which is pretty awesome. And we have talked about Claire's call, but today we're going to finally talk about Jamie Fraser. Which we know (laughs) you were all waiting for, right? So... (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't mind talking about him. <laughs> I don't mind looking at him either. So. I did look back over, you know, like all the images that we've done for each episode. And I was like, Claire is in everyone. We have been quite Claire heavy for this first season. We'll do a lot more on Jamie. So hang on. Yeah, <laughs> today, yeah, yeah, yeah. today yeah. and then future episodes, there will be episodes that are focused just on Jamie. Yeah, I think it's kind of normal, though, Claire being yeah. this a she good portion of it. She is the primary character. Well, and she, she speaks in first person. You know, us as being females, we identify with her, in particular with any type of feminist theology that we're doing. So mm-hmm. narratively, her speaking in first person and her being female and, and kind of pushing the boundaries, I think it was just natural and normal for us to talk about her first. But yeah. I think we're going to end the season with Jamie and then bring that back when we do the second season. So absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm excited. He's, yeah, I would say he's one of my favorite fictional characters of all time. So yeah, it's easy. It's well, and and I think I think yeah, (laughs) yes, it is easy, and we can look at lovely pictures of him before we put him up on the website. So uh, while we're talking about James Fraser, I believe Mm -hmm. we had some listener feedback about that. We did, yeah. So Celtic Muse contacted us on our surveys and it gave us a bit of information on both the comforts and challenges of reading Outlander for her. And she said that they're often one and the same. And so I'm going to quote a little bit of what she said. She's like, I get great comfort knowing that a body of people... There is a body of people out there who is who are just in as in love with the books as I am. So hey, join the club. Yeah, we're really we're glad for that too. <laughs> and she said that she's made decades long lasting relationships over the internet because of the love of these books. And so I also think that that's that's beautiful. And when we talk about the role of Outlander in people's lives and in in the fandom, that that is part of what we're talking about is how a community is built around a particular story and yeah. how that makes the story sacred right yeah absolutely and she says that she knows she's not alone in saying how extremely difficult it is to find decent historical romance books after reading uh, reading outlander right yeah yeah (laughs) and that all other relationships pale in comparison to jamie and claire i mean who can who can measure up to to james (laughs) fraser right Uh, Right. which we're going to talk about right and in Interesting, though, she says, she's like, Lord John Gray comes fairly close, but I'm still waiting for him to finally find someone who can call his own and receive the love that he so deeply deserves, which I totally agree with. I do, too. I mean, I'm so in love with John Gray. <laughs> no. Partially, I think, I would want to say, not all people, I think, need that kind of love in order to 
be fulfilled, but at the same time. But th- th- there seems to be a piece missing from John. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The narrative is written in a way that, yeah, John is, John is looking for that. John needs that. John deserves it. Um, yeah, he deserves so, to find something lasting for himself. He does, yeah. So, Diana, if you're listening, we at least want a happy <laughs> ending for... For LJG, please. Um, <laughs> I don't know that we're going to get a happy ending by book 10. I would, I'm, yeah. I'm concerned, Diana. I'm concerned. <laughs> I'm concerned we're not going to get to book 10 and you're going to leave me hanging like Sue Grafton did. Come on. <laughs> no, it'll, it'll be okay. It'll be okay. But, yeah, we. I'd like to see Lord John at least have some fun and... Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah, and it not be Claire. So yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, well, I don't think he'd consider that fun. But well, yeah. he. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we, we got a picture of that in in the last couple of books, so <laughs> it was a little yeah, disturbing. I don't, I'm, I'm not sure. But anyway, so yeah, so we wanted to just kind of highlight the role of James Fraser in setting up expectations or not, as the case may be, how his calling and who he is in the story, which is what we're going to be focusing on here today play a role even in how the community how the fans respond to what the story means for them so thanks celtic muse yeah thank you very much we appreciate this and again anytime anybody wants to have comments send us emails you can go to our website at www.outlandersoul.com Mm-hmm. It's all one word, Outlander Soul. And just either send us an email or, or respond to our survey questions that are new for each episode that we do this work. Or you can, you know, send us a voicemail or, or you know, what have you. We've received all kinds of different ways of communication. But this podcast is really set up so that we can have these conversations virtually. So we've also got Facebook page and Twitter and we would love to hear from you in this way. And we've actually been hearing from you and that's very exciting. So let's Mm. keep this up. Last week we hit 300 likes on Facebook and we're We're now at like 342, something like that, which is fantastic. So Mm. let's keep that momentum going and keep the conversation lively and respectful and lovely and all about Outlander. A lot of people have given us feedback that we're talking about Outlander in a different way than what most fan communities are doing. And not that that's bad. One isn't any better than the other. But I think we are possibly, hopefully, let us know if this isn't true, but hopefully scratching an itch where we're dealing with the text and with a bit more rigor and a bit more depth as far as thinking about it in new ways. And so we're hoping that that continues to be the case. And and we're really grateful for you to be following us and listening. That was an itch that we had. Absolutely. Totally self-interest here. Right. This is something (laughs) we were looking for and just assumed that maybe somebody else might be looking for this too. I, you know, I had been having the itch to talk about stories and theology for, I mean, since I was probably like four or five years old, I, I to, to match the stories that I was seeing on television and reading with what I was learning at church and in my bizarro church school that I went to. I've been wanting to do it, and it wasn't really until I went to seminary and met other folks who had that same itch and who, mm. and I, you know, got the vocabulary to have this conversation that mm. that I felt open enough to have it. And so th- this is something that you and I both love to do. And yeah. we both love the story. And we just assumed that there were other people out there that might also love this like we do. And yeah. we've been right. And so I'm mm-hmm. just it's a gift for us to be able to have this conversation every two Definitely. weeks. 
Hmm. And so we are glad to have you as a part of that gift. And so we shall start with the king of men, James (laughs) Alexander Malcolm Mackenzie Fraser. Jamf. (laughs) Jamf. (laughs) So so we talked about Claire's call in episode Mm. seven. Mm. And we kind of gave an introduction to what call is and uh, what vocation is. Uh, So just real quick recap for those of you who are listening to this for the first time. Vocation, it comes from the Latin word vocare, meaning to call. Both of them are fairly similar. A calling is the actual realization, the epiphany that this is something that I am supposed to do with my life or supposed to do in this moment. The vocation is the actual work that you're doing. Your vocation does not have to be a career. Sometimes it is. So when you talk about getting a call from God, talk Mm -hmm. about getting a call to the ministry. And so that Mm -hmm. ministry becomes uh, your vocation. But I know people who've been called to be accountants. And so Mm -hmm. they ended up following a call to accounting because something Mm -hmm. that they absolutely love and it's something that serves others. So Frederick Buechner is probably the best guide to understanding what vocation is. He's got a very famous Mm -hmm. quote, vocation is the place where our deep gladness meets the world's deep need. And so when we talked about Claire and vocation, we talked about her specific talents, her specific skills, and how she uses those to do something or to benefit the community or to do something for another. It goes very deep into scripture, and people always quote the Jeremiah quote whenever they talk about call. It's Jeremiah 19, 11 through 13. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future with hope. Then when you call upon me and come and pray to me, I will hear you. When you search for me, you will find me if you seek me with all your heart. And so I I think this idea of the calling coming from a source maybe in the community or outside of ourselves or the epiphany, the realization of that, plus this vocation, this this work that we do that benefits the community. It all kind of ties into coming from the community, going back into the community. It always ties into the things that we love deeply as well as the talents and skills that we have and we were mm-hmm. born with. So mm-hmm. that's the quick recap. Well, and I think it's also important, I mean, we said this a bit before, but also in the context of, of this conversation to say that sometimes your calling and your vocation are not necessarily what pay. <laughs> Correct. Correct. So, so, I, so I do. <laughs> yeah, we talked about this before, but, you know, we do lots of things for pay, but our, our vocation is <laughs> as theologians. And so, yeah, it'd be great if we got paid full time to do that um and and you know a little plug here you can support us on patreon and that helps that vocation a little bit more but yeah just to say that we talk about vocation sometimes in the sense of a career and it's not always that let's just say there are lots of people out there who feel called to ministry and their vocation is as a minister but they are bivocational in the sense of they are doing other jobs to pay the bills to and that's finance us. Their, their own work and that's us, yeah. and that's us. 
And it's not to say that vocation is Mm. static either. Exactly. It changes. It Mm. changes. And that's really a lot of what we're going to be getting into, I think, with Jamie. Claire's vocation doesn't seem to, she seems to have a solid thread all the way through. It grows and matures, like as we talked about in the last episode. But but yeah, it is pretty pretty focused on health, the body, healing. Doing the doctoring, whether she's a Mm. nurse or whether she's a doctor Mm. or whether she's a white woman. She always mm-hmm. tends to do that. But Jamie Jamie does have, I think, a singular thread. But I think his vocation and the work that he does changes. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, so the call may stay the same, but the actual vocation might change. All right, so let's get into James Fraser. <clears throat> yes. I'm, I'm way into James Fraser. <laughs> you're going to hear this a lot for this episode. Are. We're all just going to start blushing. <laughs> And looking down in our laps or looking off in the distance, imagining the red-headed Viking man that he is. Oh, and it doesn't yeah. help that I've got a thing for red-headed men. I really no. do. So, <laughs> Oh, my yeah. God. Between Sam yeah. Ewan and, and Ewan McGregor, man, I am, I am toast this year. <laughs> It's funny, though, I've also seen a few posts on the Outlander groups about talking about how people are attracted to Jamie Fraser character, but they're not attracted to Sam Hewen as a, you know, like, who he is as Jamie is amazing, but Sam Hewen, eh, he's nice, but, I would have to agree with that. I agree with that, too. And I was just having this conversation with David, actually, the other night, Mm -hmm. my husband, and I was talking about going to see The Spy Who Dumped Me, and I'm going to go see that this week with my friend, who is also an Outlander fan, and Mm. she she loves Sam Hewen. But we both kind of look and we're like, he's definitely not James Fraser. (laughs) Exactly. I told I told Dave he's like you're gonna go see this movie because Sam Hewins and I'm like well yeah <laughs> I also like Kate McKinnon a lot but I'm I, I'm gonna go see this because of that and I was like but truly I don't think you have to worry Sam Hewin really doesn't mm-hmm. do it for me like James Fraser does he's beautiful but you know like it's just yeah. kind of oh yeah he's, you know he's another nice looking guy but James Fraser yeah there is just something else Sam Hewin really does bring that to life and I he does so appreciative <laughs> because. <laughs> Because he does, he does it very, very well. So excellent casting there, guys. James Fraser, King of Men. Mm-hmm. Is King of Men the calling? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think it's interesting to think about I mean, it that the- way. Who calls him the King of Men? Where does that come from? I don't that's remember. The of that phrase. I don't remember where that comes from, but I that's a huge phrase. We always talk it about it. Everybody talks about that. Did Can- Diana call him that? I don't know. It's very possible. We'll have to do some research. Or maybe maybe some of our listeners yeah, know. Yeah, any listeners know. Where did the phrase King of Men in reference to James Fraser come from? We would really love to know. But yeah, so Jamie's calling. Okay, so King of Men, we could say. But I think, in essence, the calling is to be a leader, maybe. Yes, and I think that's the thread. Through everything mm. Jamie does, everything that he mm. is... I think that's the thread of his calling, and it's damned inconvenient sometimes. Yeah, you know, he's yeah. he has to deal with a lot of crap just because of that calling, which, you know, that's the other thing, too. Just because you've been called to something doesn't mean it's going to be easy. No, look at the story of Jonah. 
It also doesn't mean it's going to end well. Yeah. <laughs> well, partially it. it was because Jonah was running from that call. But, it doesn't you know. end well. It doesn't, yeah. he, he's, it, that's one of the saddest, to me, one of the saddest stories in scripture. You know, Jonah's got this amazing calling. He's about to bring people to a reconciliation place with God, a place where they've not been before. He's about mm-hmm. to introduce that. And then God does this work. He runs mm-hmm. away, big fish swallows him, fantastic story, spits him out mm-hmm. and he walks up to Nineveh and preaches and preaches and, and, and they repent and he's angry. Well, he preaches and preaches. He's just, he just kind of says, y'all don't deserve it, but God wants you. You know, like yes, that's not right. much of a sermon. No, it isn't. But, <laughs> so but he's it not terribly good at what he does and yet he's been called to do it. He does go out, he preaches. They do repent, and he is so prejudiced against them. Mm-hmm. So he cannot even talk to God because he's angry that God loves them. Mm-hmm. And that's just such a sad story. I'm so sorry to diverge okay. from that. But but Jamie's calling as leader is, it's an amazing calling most of the time for him. Mm-hmm. But other times it's just really, really tough. And it's it's a rare day that he does not take up that mantle, though. Mm. Yeah, I'm suddenly what, wondering when does he not? Is there a time right. when he doesn't? I'm not sure. Well, there is that time in the Scottish prisoner. He hmm. he refuses to, oh, to take up the mantle of leading men into battle again. He yeah. won't do it. He does later when he comes to the States and gets involved with the Revolutionary War. He, he doesn't want to. Yeah. But he knows because, you know, clears from the future, which side is going to be the winning side. The other point, though, I mean, we're kind of just diving into this. But so in Scottish prisoner, though. It is other people who are telling him what they think God has called him to do, as opposed to him actually feeling the call himself. To be a leader doesn't necessarily mean you have to lead absolutely everything, right? Or that you don't have to go into battle every time there's a battle to be fought. You know, when I was in seminary, one thing Mm -hmm. that somebody said, it was... um, One of the professors who had done a lot of work during the sit-ins for racial equality in the late 50s and the early 60s, and our campus, the campus at Union Presbyterian Seminary and the Presbyterian School of Christian Education, those two campuses back at that time, Mm -hmm. were having major sit-ins and were having some, Mm -hmm. some serious issues, and they were going to march on Washington. Somebody looked at him and said because he was he was rushing into another battle one that wasn't necessary yeah and he's like you know pick the hill you're gonna die on Mm. because at some point this call will lead to pain will you be around to fight this the other day you have to be very careful what you choose and i think jamie learns this later i think when we see him in two virgins he's you know ready to fight loves to fight Mm. just virgins is the name of that yeah I'm sorry, in virgins, to see him change over the years, learning those skills and then change and becoming a lot more discretionary as to where he is going to lead war. Yeah, I'm conscious that a lot of people will say out of their own interest what they think we're called to do. It's interesting because part of discerning your call is to listen to the community because the community sometimes is able to reflect something back to you that you don't always see or they're able to say, hey, these are the things that you're really good at and are able to sort of put that into practice or find jobs for you or, or, you know, things for you to do that are part of that call. However, there's a lot of people who will also call you to things because it's what they want as opposed to what is actually in your interest to do or that which 
God might have called you to do. Everybody always has something for me to do. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And so if everybody's going around saying, God wants you to do this, then, you know, that's an immense amount of pressure to put on somebody using God language. And that's what people do to him in Scottish Prisoner. He's just... Yes, they do. He's just been defeated at Culloden. All the horror of that. Been in Ardsmuir. Now he's at Hellwater. And he's however many years, 10, 15 years down the line, maybe. They use his son against him. They do, yeah. Maybe it's been about 10 years at this mm-hmm. point, I think. So mm-hmm. so he goes to Ardsmuir for, what, three, four years? Then he goes to Hellwater. And yeah. he's only in Hellwater for a little while before, you know, Geneva happens. Mm-hmm. And then she has the baby. So that's two years. Mm-hmm. At this point, Willie is maybe three years old. Yeah, so it's really only been maybe eight to ten years that we get the Scottish prisoner. He's only ten years off of Culloden. Mm. Ten years off of losing Claire. You've got somebody using his son against him. Mm-hmm. The priest who's talking to him about possibly going into the Irish Jacobite mm-hmm. and, and helping to lead the Irish Jacobites. It says, you're only staying for a son that will never know you and can never bear your name. How dare yeah. you do that? God is calling you. What yeah. a horrible thing to say to someone. <laughs> yeah. He says, is it the boy you've turned aside from your duty, from the thing God's called you to do, to, do, to be a lickspittle to the English, to, to wear their chains, to go and tend a child who doesn't need you and will never bear your name? What a horrifying thing to say. Mm, yeah. I, you know, I want to slap that priest a bit because mm. that's just not, that's not appropriate. It's a guilt play. And I, ugh, how often has that happened to us? Mm. Hmm. to people that we know it's spiritual abuse it is yeah and jamie responds and says you know i lost my whole family to this it's and you know i did what duty called me to and this time is not going to be different it's not worth the sacrifice and then the priest is basically you know saying it's not going to be worth the sacrifice if men like you don't do it and he calls on the parable of talents and, you know, it says that, you know, you're wasting your time. Do you mean to stand before God come the last day and tell him you spurn the gifts he gave you? Yeah. There are always people out there who will tell you how to use abusive. your gifts. And this is a perfect example of that. That's part of the discernment is trying to figure out whether or not there's a power play or why somebody mm. is asking if there's some other motivation that's out there. But spiritual abuse is real and this is a really good example of it because Mm -hmm. it's the you know nobody's going to be able to do this in the church but you you know I need you to head up the hospitality committee Mm -hmm. or I need you to head up this other committee and Mm -hmm. if if you know for a fact that you really just can't do it and then there's nobody else but you God Mm -hmm. is calling you Mm -hmm. I I find that that always sends up red flags for me or you know counting your life as lost or or that, you know, whatever you want doesn't matter for the for the bigger picture. And you know what? Sometimes yes. sometimes that's true. But sometimes it's not. <laughs> <laughs> Oftentimes it's not. Oft and especially not. if they pit, say, your career or mm. your family or mm. something like that. Your own your health, health and well being. Yeah. Correct. Correct. Against mm. the thing that they want. Mm. That to me is a surefire sign that mm. perhaps you're being yeah. misled. Yeah. So Jamie mm. wasn't really set up to be this leader, though. No, he was born as a second son. So he wasn't supposed to be. And we talked about this in Claire's, uh, in the episode where we talked about Claire. Sometimes, you know, the calling is thrust upon you. Sometimes it's innate. Sometimes it's a mix of both. And in this case, I think Jamie would always have had 
this capacity or always have been this person, but in some ways it was honed and forced upon him by becoming the elder son with Willie's death, right? Yeah. So William, his older brother, dies when he's, I think, like 11 years old. And Jamie is only, what, like five or six? I think so. I really should have a timeline in front of me. I should. <laughs> well, there is one over at, the, at Diana Gabaldon's mm-hmm. website, there I believe. Yeah. So Willie dies when he's 11 years old, and I think it's, what, Scarlet Fever? I think or, so, or something or, or No, 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 smallpox. Small, was it smallpox? One of those S ones. <laughs> yeah, I think it was smallpox. Anyway, I mean, he dies. Yeah. It leaves it leaves uh, Jamie and, and Jenny as the, as the only two children, and Jenny being a female and the older, because of her gender, she is not allowed to inherit the farm and the lands mm-hmm. and become the laird, which I find interesting enough that actually she she and her husband ultimately do become, mm-hmm. in, in essence, the laird, and their child ends up becoming the one who inherits Lalibrock mm-hmm. and, all of, and all of the lands around it. So it's a little bit of sad justice there in a way. Yeah. But Jamie is then, at that point, looked at to become the laird. Mm-hmm. And so he's given all of the preparations mm-hmm. for that, sent away to be with Dougal. So well, and his education learn. as well. He sent to yes. France for his education before he sent to France as a mercenary. Yep. Yep. Um, yep. So the understanding that he needs to, well, as, you know, all the stuff that comes along with being a wealthy landowner is you need right. to be educated. You need to understand how to comport yourself in society. You need to, you know, all of those gentlemanly things that he's he has trained, been groomed for. Yeah, and so this is kind of thrust upon him in a way. He's mm. born into Lallybrock. But then when William dies, it's suddenly, now it's up to him. Mm-hmm. All of the burden is now on his shoulders. And, yeah. and speaking of shoulders, I mean, physically, he is larger, you know, in yeah. comparison to, to his countrymen in the time. Um, he is taller, and there's a physicality, I think, to his calling as well. His height and and his good looks yeah. draw people to him. There is There is something attractive in him in the sense that people are attracted to to him, to his leadership, to the role, to his charisma, whatever, you know, whatever it is, and look to him for leadership. He, he's an easy person that people can look to, if that makes sense. It does make sense. And and we, as a society, do mm. tend towards the taller, the better looking as our leaders. Mm. It's just, it's psychology. They've tested this a bunch of times. Mm. But just as a quick example, the election of John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon in 1960 Mm. was the first televised debate. Those who watched the debate believed that Kennedy won. Those who Mm. listened to it on the radio believed that Nixon won. Mm. Based purely on looks and the physicality Based of the responses. Based purely on looks. Nixon was, not a, Nixon was not a handsome man. He mm. was sweating a lot during the interview. He, he, his eyes shifted back and forth. So he looked as if he were lying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not to say mm. that he wasn't. <laughs> Future um, might, might have told, <laughs> told us that, yeah, actually he could have been. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, and, but John F. Kennedy did not offer as much substance, but he offered hope and he offered a picture of something more beautiful. And so people opted for that and ultimately did elect him over Richard Nixon. So Doesn't work every time, though. Doesn't no. work every we, time. We do as, have Trump as president now. We do. Yeah. So, so Let's, let's <laughs> pass not, on on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, let's pass on that. But what we do have is this tradition hmm. of choosing the taller, the larger men as leaders. 
uh, the better looking ones Maybe. because mm-hmm. in general they can pretty much survive the battle they're bigger mm-hmm. they're stronger if you're looking scripturally in the jewish scriptures you can look at king saul mm-hmm. he was very tall he was mm-hmm. obviously the leader and mm-hmm. if you look at king arthur which isn't in the hebrew bible which isn't in the hebrew bible <laughs> But is another sacred text, Mordartur. Then, you know, you've got a king who the belief is was taller and and larger and stronger than the others who served him. We even have the phrase, head and shoulders above the rest. Right. Absolutely. I think that is part of what lends itself to, to Jamie's leadership is just his physical stature how he carries himself. He seems to be comfortable in that Mm. role for the most part. I think he seems to understand that people look to him and he he seems to be able to at least if even if he can't act on it Hmm. or chooses not to act on it like Hmm. with the Irish Jacobites he seems comfortable with the fact that people just come to him there's a confidence about it I think Yeah. yeah 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 whether or not he can do anything about it he he seems to expect it and he places himself apart he does in in that role well okay so scottish prisoner i think is pretty is actually a pretty important text and looking at who jamie is outside of outside of claire to be honest i mean the rest of the rest of the series that jamie is not that he's any different but there is still a sense in which Claire almost taints, even though that sounds horrible, but I don't mean it that way. But there's an influence that Claire plays, I think, in how Jamie is being described or who he is or that kind of stuff. But in Scottish Prisoner, of course, she's missing. And so it is easier, I think, to to get a much more pure, maybe, distillation of who Jamie is. Yeah, Claire isn't always a reliable narrator. No, no, no. And, that, and that's kind of the thing to understand is that when mm. you've got a narrator, you always have to understand that this, this is just from one person's point of view if you're yeah. telling it first person. Yeah. Like with A Telltale Heart and Edgar Allan Poe, it's one of the earliest and finest examples of an un reliable narrator hmm. but when we hear about jamie and when we hear about anybody else's point of view, it's always told third person it's always told from like this god's eye point of view we're, hmm. we're hearing jamie's thoughts but but we're hearing it as a from third person hmm. hearing somebody else whom we don't know hmm. talk about jamie's thoughts and so the scottish prisoner i think is exceptional in the fact that we see him interact with others in hmm. a way particularly old friends without claire there and, yeah. and that that lostness yeah well and i think okay so uh, I, a slight point where you just said that lostness i think there is something that distills in us our characters in that context of lostness that when you are pretty much just functioning <laughs> that yeah. your essence in the sense of who you are becomes even even more clear or even more defined as to kind of what motivates you as opposed to the times when you're happy and you know things are going well or even in the midst of battle things might not be going well but there's still lots of other yeah i don't know how if i'm describing that well but it it, it yeah he is just melancholic and and just surviving and just is getting on with life but there's not much to live for if that makes sense in the scottish prisoner but you're talking about how people see him and this is lord john gray 
who's describing him and saying that he doesn't he doesn't ape anything or doesn't he doesn't pretend basically to be anything else and that he has a sense of himself that's quite separate from what society demands he is inclined to make his own rules and this is John Gray talking to Minnie about Jamie and I think that's that was probably one of the most astute observations <laughs> But of course, Lord John Gray has made that observation about Jamie. He is because he has studied he's in love him, with him. Every, yeah. Yes, yeah. absolutely. He's in love with him, and that makes it makes perfect sense that he would know. And mm. the idea that he makes his own rules, but the rules for the most part tend to be just ones. I think that there are some. You know, there are some moments where it may not have been as just with some of the things that Jamie does. And I know that that's going to really rub some of our listeners wrong. Yeah, well, season four, the coming up. He and Ian sell Roger. Yes, uh, yeah, that, there are some oh, moments. I'm so mad at him. <laughs> yes, and I, I had to read it. So I'm reading Drums of Autumn again in preparation for it. And I got to that part and I said, like, I just don't know if I can read it. I, I just know, don't so know hard. if I can read what he's going to do to Roger because what they do to Roger is just so brutal. Anyway, I, I still have issues with what happened between he and Geneva. Mm-hmm. And they yeah. really, for those who've not read the books but who've only watched the television show, they really gloss that over. Jamie is very complicated in that scene and very complicated in the scene with Roger. Also very complicated in the killing of Dougal. Very, very complicated. His his choices are always deliberate. And, and he always owns them. He doesn't do anything accidentally, it seems. Yeah, I, um, I think I would agree with you there. But, you know, at the same time, I'm glad he's complicated. I'm glad that it's not simple. In the sense of, be because we're, we're... First of all, yeah, he'd be perfect. And, you know, hey. But second, it just makes for a much more realistic story because all of us are complicated right I mean all of um, us make decisions hmm. that we regret what I think it challenges us to do is to be intentional with those decisions even if we know that we might at some point regret them we own what we've done Mm. but throughout okay so going back to Jamie's main thread of call to lead Mm -hmm. right so he leads raids in the first first book and in references to the others he leads yep. warriors in the second book and beyond he leads prisoners in voyager he leads tenants once they go from book four onward into the on the colonies settlers and and the colonial army so he just constantly jamie is leading i think that that is the main central theme think to jamie's calling right yeah as it turns out the lairdship that he Mm. passes on to Mm. his namesake his nephew he ends up coming to the states and settling down in the mountains of north carolina and Mm. people just kind of flock to him mainly because he was in the prison at ardsmere he was the spokesperson for all the prisoners there the one who would approach Mm. the head of Ardsmere the the warden and say we need these things and so he became the voice for them they come to the states because their their sentence has been they've been transported to the colonies they've been transported because Ardsmere was closed down it's part of their punishment and so they are sent to the states and when Jamie arrives they immediately still look to him as Mm -hmm. the leader 
And there's only one really who has an issue with that, and that's Tom Christie. But that's been born out of jealousy, right? I mean, it's, yeah, he's, so, he's been jealous of Jamie from day one. And I guess the interesting thing is that you know Jamie as Laird has been able to kind of develop those skills of being able to deal with somebody who is a rival for his uh, leadership, for his responsibility, and for that role. Dougal and growing up in the Mackenzie clan mm-hmm. and all of the machinations that <laughs> went on there. Even though he sees Tom Christie, he doesn't, I don't think he really sees Tom Christie as a threat. No. Necessarily. I don't think he does. No. Whereas Tom Christie does see Jamie as a, as a threat. Yeah. Which again, yeah. I think comes into security and confidence. And when you're jealous, you're insecure, right? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I think something we haven't talked about, though, is the call to lead being something around selfless concern or around sacrificing yourself or what may be your own desires for the needs of the those that you're leading. And I think that's there's an interesting interplay, especially in book one, but you see it throughout of kind of where Jamie is both this romantic kind of outlaw figure who makes his own rules, does his own thing, but yet still functions within what society expects expects of him as the gentleman, as the laird, having that sacrificial way of dealing with the people who are under his care, I guess, if that makes right. sense. And so we, we talked about Claire's I am statements that were in Dragonfly and Amber, that there's so many of these statements for both Jamie and Claire in Dragonfly and Amber. Yeah. And there's there's one that he makes. He's made a bargain with himself that he was born a laird and that he's the steward of that land and the people on it and that he's got to make his best the best of his own bargain with them. And so he's talking to Claire and he's saying, that's why I was glad that you'd come to try and see what we might be able to do. For there's a part of me that would look no like no better than to take you and the child and go far away and to spend the rest of his life working in the fields and with the beasts and to come in the evenings and lie beside her and, and quiet through the night. But he knows that if he did, he goes, there's a part of my soul that would feel forsworn. And I think... I would always hear the voices of the people that are mine calling out behind me. So he feels the call of the people he leads. I think the context of that is he had just had the private audience with Louis. That that Louis, you know, is called to be king. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. but all the trappings that have gone on with that and him having to sit on the royal <laughs> the throne. The royal throne. The royal throne, which is which is really the toilet, mm. um, and 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 then proceed to defecate in front of everyone mm. while he's keeping an audience of people. But mm. yeah, so I think that's part of what he's talking about, and that mm. he had made that bargain. So there's also a part in Dragonfly Neighbor where he's brought in Fergus. He's got a bit of this swashbuckling kind of adventure we're gonna spy we're gonna steal from people to get all these letters and to figure out and I just remember writing a question when I got to the end of that chapter of saying does Jamie need to have these adventures and to swashbuckle in the same way that Claire needs to heal again that kind of outlaw romantic kind of person versus versus the Laird does he need to kind of be up to mischief if that's also part of Jamie's I am? I wonder that too. He seems to always have a twinkle in his eye when it mm. comes to some of these things. He, mm. you know, the first time she meets him, he's just been on a raid, mm-hmm. cattle, and seems to really kind of enjoy that. Yeah. But when it comes to 
the actual war, I, I think he understands the sacrifice. Absolutely. This is one of the things that, you know, happens on their wedding night is he, he makes that, that promise, mm-hmm. that protective promise mm-hmm. to her. Mm-hmm. And it comes true by the end of the book is that he does have to give up his, he does have to lay down his own body for her to, mm-hmm. to protect her. But even more at the end of Dragonfly and Amber, mm-hmm. he lays down his own body to protect and to fight for the men at Culloden. Yeah. That duality, I think we also see kind of in his theatricality and in his practice of diplomacy when he takes the oath at the at the gathering in the first, yeah. In yeah. The first yeah. book. Yeah. At Preston Pans, when they when he first oh, encounters yeah. John Gray, and then they go on that raid to get the pins from the cannons, but he never puts himself above his own laws as Laird. So even you know, again thinking sort of Preston Pans and the and the rising of when he had him himself flogged for allow yeah security picket, however you want to. Oh, you mean call from it. the from the show? No, he Wait, does that, that in the book too. Because, he does that in the book too? because yeah, because John Gray gets in, and oh, so he right. holds himself accountable and has yep. has his men flog him. Yeah. Um. And so while you know while he has this playing sort of nature, he also has a law that both himself and his people need to follow, and he's fairly uncompromising in that. I I wonder though if that was not also a bit of theatricality. Could have been. Because taking off that shirt yeah. shows them what the English have done to his back. Yeah. But he does it again when there is no audience, when he asks Wee Ian to give him straps. Exactly. In Voyager. So yeah. it's not, it's not, it could have been, there could have been theatricality definitely in the Dragonfly and Amber scenario. But when he does that in Voyager 2, that's a little bit different. You know, bad boys are always kind of romantic, right? Yeah, they are. The rogue. <laughs> and, and yeah, yeah the, the rogue, the, the bad boy. And I think, you know, in Diana writing this kind of as a parable to the traditional romance, mm. you you get this sense of the rogue, but at the same time, he's he's so much deeper than that. And, mm. and his calling is not just to be a rogue. His no. calling is not is not just to run these raids and be a pirate and, Mm -hmm. you know, he's not a Captain Hook. He's not (laughs) that, right? But again, that theatricality when he becomes uh, what it, gosh, I don't remember what his captain, what his captain's name is. It starts with an A, Alfonso or something like that. Ridiculous (laughs) like that. Alfonso. Yeah. In Voyager. It reminds me of um, Little House on the Prairie, that name. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I, I don't remember what it was, but yeah, still he's kind of you know the bearded sort of rogue character. Yeah. But we all really know who with, he with is the pins like. in his ears. So, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. so the the call was always there to be the leader, mm. and sometimes that leadership led him into battle, and sometimes mm. it led him on raids, and mm-hmm. sometimes it's led him to just kind of be the laird of Lallybrock. And sometimes it led him to prison and to indentured servitude and exile. Yep. But ultimately, it leads him to Fraser's Ridge, where he is still, quote, laird of that area, mm-hmm. even though there weren't any lairds necessarily. Mm-hmm. He gets the offer, and, and this, this, comes, this comes back ground to, mm. to somebody telling you what 
what they want your call to be. He gets yep. the offer to stay at River Run. For those of you who are watching only and have not read the books, you'll see this in the upcoming season, Drums of Autumn. He comes to America to see his aunt because you're looking for connections. You're in this wild and, and woolly place and you need you need connections. You absolutely have mm-hmm. to have them. And so he, he connects with his aunt. And what she wants him to do is run River Run for her. Yeah. Run her plantation. And who's better what? suited for it, to be honest? He would be amazing. Oh, he, he would be amazing at this. And and she sets him up. She does the political, because she's a Mackenzie, mm-hmm. does all the political machinations to set him up to do this. Mm-hmm. She tries to pigeonhole him. She mm-hmm. tries to force him into this position. Mm-hmm. And if, if I have read Jamie Fraser right, mm-hmm. he hates that. Yeah. God he, bless he him. He having f- his finds a way to wiggle out of it. That's, yeah. That's great. He, he couldn't wiggle out of Charles Stewart signing his name no. to the bottom of the of the letter that goes out and and basically pegging him a traitor. Mm-hmm. But he he does find a way to wiggle out of this one and chooses his own path. And I think you know, the thing that you were read that you were reading of I would just like to do nothing but come home at night and lay next to you and mm-hmm. and just you know have my life quiet and easy. Mm-hmm. He gets a, a bit of that. Just just like Claire does. When we were talking about this, when we were talking about Claire's spirituality, is that mm-hmm. it, it shifts. It shifts and it shifts kind of into a quietude almost when they get to Fraser's Ridge. And Jamie seems to shift as well. He shifts mm-hmm. into rather than tearing things down and, and having to protect his own fortress of a heart he goes into building homes and building a community mm-hmm. and it, I, I think that's where his leadership is the strongest he's the builder of the community mm-hmm. and claire is the healer of that community and the two together are just dynamite they represent the the, the laird and the lady for those who have been forced to come to the Americas, and those who are longing for home. In Voyager, Jamie also talking about him being a born leader or being in this context of building things up. He even has the conversation with, or he's thinking to himself, and he says, he wondered where they came from, these gifts that shaped a man's nature. From God? Was it the descent of the paraclete and the tongues of fire that came to rest on the apostles? He remembered the picture of the Bible and his mother's parlor and the apostles all crowned with fire and looking fair daft with a shock of it standing (laughs) about like a crowd of beeswax candles lit for a party (laughs) and he says claire his own claire and so we talked about claire's call and how frank recognized her call well here here jamie recognizes her call so claire his own claire who knows what had sent her to him and thrust her into a life that she'd not been born into and yet she had known what to do what she was meant to be despite that not everyone was so fortunate as to know their gift. Was it experience or instinct that made him tighten his own hand and reassurance? And he's touching a child's head to be sort of kind of be blessed. He had been born a leader, thinking of himself, I think. But what of a man who had not been born to the role that he was required to fill? John Gray, for one. Charles Stewart, for another. He could at last see the more terrible doom of being ha- having been born a king without the gift of kingship. So being born a king without the call to be a king, without the skills to be a king. Whereas I think Jamie, maybe this is where the king of men comes from. He's the born king. He's just not appointed king, if that makes sense, maybe. So so with 
with Lord John Gray, he was mm. born to a certain status, mm. and he chooses spying instead. Mm. He ends up becoming governor of Jamaica and becoming governor here and there, and every, mm. he ends up being a leader. But mm. with Charles Stewart, it was taken away from him. It was also taken away from Jamie. Mm-hmm. Let's just be very clear. His lairdship was, was stolen from him. He had to give it to his nephew mm-hmm. or lose it for his family forever. Yeah. And it wasn't anything I, I think that he wanted to do. But no matter where he goes, he is still the king of men. And people flock to him because of these gifts and skills that he has. Mm-hmm. No matter where Charles Stewart goes, he is not the prince. He is not the king. He mm-hmm. is a nincompoop. <laughs> he is, he's, he's a drunken sot yeah. who, who does not understand the first thing about leadership. All he has ever known, really, is his father in exile. And, and, th- and entitlement. Yes. It's a, he's incredibly entitled. I think the difference is, honestly, between somebody like Jamie, born and born to leadership and then losing it, mm-hmm. is that he still, he still continues his vocation and he allows the vocation to shift. Mm. He, he allows the work he does and the call to remain. He knows he's called to leadership. He doesn't know where the call comes from. He's got these amazing gifts, and he's still, like the the parable of the talents, Mm. is using them Mm -hmm. to help people and to create community and to do something wonderful and loving and positive in this world. Mm. Charles Stewart is not. (laughs) No, no. And the context of that, that... That passage I just read was in an Ardsmere. And so even in the context of prison, in the context of extreme suffering, he becomes McDoo. He becomes this person. And and maybe, okay, so maybe that's the connection too, is that, you know, we talk about call being the standard, but that the vocation changes. The vocation changes with each name he has. Yes. Yeah, it does. And he, so he takes on a completely different identity. He takes on a identity. different name and a different identity within each within each vocation. So Alexander Malcolm, the print printmaker, we haven't talked yeah. about him, but that's a vocation in the sense that he is still leading by putting out seditious materials and by being a voice for people in the context of post rising yeah. Scotland. Um, you know what I forgot. Mm. When I was putting it together for the Scottish prisoner, that that timeline, mm-hmm. I completely forgot his time as at McDo- as McDoob. So there's, that's seven years. So we're talking at you're right. It's right about mm-hmm. fifteen years that a Scottish prisoner takes place, mm-hmm. and five years from this that time is when Claire returns. Okay, I'm sorry for that sideline, but I I, no, I just no, I knew fine. that there would be a listener out there who's like Terry, you forgot this. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to catch that before before you felt like you had to, to say anything. Maybe the email's already been sent. <laughs> <laughs> may have already been sent already. Um, but yeah, but I, I agree with you there. He mm. he does. He changes his name. He, and, and yet he is still leading people when he is Alexander uh, Malcolm. Sorry. Yeah. He's still leading. He's still creating sedition for a just cause by printing the pamphlets. So his commitment to justice, his commitment to leadership, his commitment mm-hmm. to being a voice to those who aren't able to speak it themselves, all of that is still continuing. It's just in a different form, under a different name. So I, I think John Gray has got the same kind of thread that runs through his life. Mm. I really do. I think he is equally as has got the same amount of integrity, has got the same 
amount of stalwartness and love and kindness in him that Jamie does. And, and it's a different calling. It's a very different calling. And it, it was a calling that I don't think was fully and truly appreciated by his family. Yeah. And, of course, what's mixed into that is his identity as mm-hmm. a gay man in the, ni- mm-hmm. in the uh, 18th century and all the trouble that that brings on. But Jamie, Jamie stays true to his call. I do believe that Lord John Gray does. I just... For, for Charles Stewart to have been given this at birth and then to lose and nothing good ever happens to him after that. Yeah. He just kind of falls along in the detrius of history. He is just, it's, it's you know, he is, he is no more after Culloden. But talking about John Gray's call. So I think his case is he was... Perhaps born delayed, given his aristocracy, given his off- officer status in the army, that yeah. kind of stuff. But you've talked about Buddy Cheese's spying, which isn't as leadership focused as, of course, Jamie would be. But we mentioned Frank's call for raising Brianna. And I think John Gray has acknowledged a similar call to raise Willie. Yeah, I think you're right there. I think his call to be a father is very strong and I think it you know while he's still doing the spying and he's still leading men in battle and leading men he is mm-hmm. he he becomes that father too you to see him him at his at his most pure self I think yeah. in yeah. his interactions with William and I think that's part of what call is about is when you see people at their essence at that distillation that we've already talked about of who they are when the rubber hits the road and for John Gray I don't know that it's necessarily to be a leader but to be a nurturer to be a carer to be someone who facilitates who helps people or or something move forward but not necessarily the one plowing the trail well he's definitely not the one in blazing the, the trail in, mix my metaphors yeah he's there. not on the dias leading the leading the no. masses he's the that's that's jane jamie mm-hmm. and that's that's who he is i find it interesting too that so this is a time when jamie approaches someone about taking on a task geneva has died mm-hmm. willie is there lord john and his w- wife mm-hmm. who is geneva's sister isabel isabel they take on willie and a lot of it is at Jamie's request. He could turn him down. This could be one of those moments where somebody says, you know, no, that's not my calling. That's not what I'm called to do. Mm-hmm. I think the difference, too, is the way Jamie asks mm-hmm. is, you know, the offering of his self, himself mm-hmm. uh, to, to Lord John Gray and the fact that Lord John Gray would never take someone in that way. No. But the idea that, that Jamie, Jamie does need this so desperately because he has to, he has to go. So okay, so let's take that a little bit further. So is John mm-hmm. Gray's call not actually about William, though maybe it is, but actually to love Jamie? I don't know if that's a calling or not. It it, it might be. He's not able to act on that vocation in a way that he would like. No, but he's that, but he, it's, it's he not... shows it by saving Jamie's ass on numerous occasions. Numerous occasions, yeah. I mean, maybe it's to care for Jamie, Mm -hmm. certainly. Mm -hmm. I think the love that he has for Jamie is one of those things where you can't help what you love. No, that's true. And he, you know, falls in love with him. And much like Claire can't help what she, it just so happens that Jamie loved her too. And Jamie falls for Claire the moment he sees her. I don't want to diminish that at all. But at the same time, I think there are situations whereby we love 
people, but know that there's nothing we can do to maintain it or to be in their lives or we know that it's just not it's just not something we can keep doing so I guess maybe I'm thinking about a call in that way a call in the sense of I'm committed to this person regardless of whether they're able to love me in the same way I see what you're saying now and so I'm just thinking because John Gray could have just said well to hell with you and and moved on and he didn't. He has maintained a relationship with Jamie despite it being unrequited and has maintained his devotion to Jamie's welfare and to, you know, and taking care of William and taking care of Claire, uh, you know, doing all the things above and beyond what someone should do. You know what I mean? And the question, I think, is, is he doing those for Jamie or is he doing them out of a sense of integrity? Both. You know? I don't think I don't yeah. think John Gray can do anything outside of his sense of integrity. First of all, no, I I, I agree with you there. I, I so think I think he, that he and Jamie are very much the same in that way. They can't right. do anything that sort of goes against their own laws of integrity and honesty and whatever. Mm-hmm. I guess there is a kind of a sense of call in the, in the sense that two people are called to to lead a committed life together, but mm. but to offer that commitment to someone who you cannot be with. That's a rough call. It's hard. And and I'm well, not okay, I'm not so sure it's something a... we would ask people to do necessarily, no? but it's still so honorable when you see it, but But it is in the Jewish scriptures. It is. Yes. Yeah. It's it's the it's the story of Hosea and Gomer. But that, and and yeah. that's a messed up story. Okay? <laughs> I was about to say, oh Lord, let's not hold that's that a, up as an example of how no, we no, should no, be no, committed that, to a, one that, another. A messed up, that is a messed up story <laughs> in ten different ways. Yeah. But the way it's portrayed mm. is that you've got a man who has been called to a relationship mm. with a prostitute to have children with this prostitute, and then she leaves and goes back to her ways. Mm-hmm. And the question is, why would God call someone? And the question I always have is, why would God call someone to this much heartache? It assumes that that relationship was out in out of love and I don't know that that's necessarily the case but yeah another example which is also problematic I've recently discovered but we could look at Ruth and Naomi where you know Ruth makes a choice to commit herself to someone who she isn't related to she's got every reason to to go on possibly whether or not she actually had somewhere to go is another question but it's that same called to a relationship that may or may not have reciprocal benefits that type of a calling is a is really much of a heartbreak and Mm. you know getting getting back to jamie that's Mm. sort of some of what happens to him he has the love of this amazing woman Mm -hmm. he's lied cheated stealed murdered all those things for her yeah they've tried to change the course of history they can't yeah and he sends her back through the stones to save his child and her and her, knowing that he'll never see her again. And then carrying on with Culloden, getting to the work of what he must do as that call was forced on him mm. to have to go through with it. Mm. And then to live out the rest of those 20 years stripped yeah. of himself, stripped of his relationship with Claire, down to his, down to nothing but tendons and bones. And being able to... For, for folks who see him, being able to see that kind of pain mm. 
in him at all times, but to still then carry on the work that you must mm-hmm. do is just astounding. I mean, one of the things, maybe to maybe to draw this conversation to a close, is to begin to sort of thinking about. I mean, we talk about call and vocation is so almost intrinsic to one's identity. And so I'm thinking about Dave Matthews Band, that song Dancing Nancy's, which was so important yeah. for me in the late 90s. <laughs> <laughs> um, but where he talks about, could I have been a parking lot attendant? Could I have been a millionaire in Bel Air? Could I have been, you know, lost somewhere in Central Park? Could I have been my little brother? And and so the, the question that he asks in the chorus is, could I have been other one, anyone other than me? And so kind of the possibilities of who we, who we could have been or do we, how much choice do we have in the matter? And of course it's a nurture versus nature conversation. We've talked about this in the sense of, you know, what people are born into and how their vocations and their callings might be almost biological. We said we were talking about that in the Claire's episode. But just could Jamie have been anyone other than James Fraser as we know him? Had Willie survived, would James Fraser still be the same person that he is? I I just could John Gray, because we started talking about him a bit, could John Gray have been anyone else had Hal died? Would he still be the same person? And I just think that's a really important an interesting question that we obviously don't have the answer for. It's all conjecture, speculation, but... Well, and I think that that kind of goes into that, and, and at some point in the next season, we will mm-hmm. promise, talk mm-hmm. about uh, the idea of determinism versus free will. Yeah. You know, the, the idea that are we kind of born to what we are mm-hmm. and how much influence do we have over this? Mm-hmm. You know, we, we believe we've got the, all these choices and sometimes things happen to us for which we have no choice, but we always have the choice on how we respond to that. James Fraser could have rebelled against his father yeah, and okay. said, I'm not going to do this. Yeah. And left Brian heartbroken and just stayed in Become France. the prodigal and just been a mercenary for the rest of his life. Yeah. Pretty much. That's mm-hmm. what he, he could have done that. there, mm-hmm. And I think we like to believe that we have the choice to do stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And we look back in retrospect and, and think, you know, if I had done this, I would be in a different place. But I, I think there's probably a boundary. There's 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 probably just a, a, a small swath of decisions we can make. A lot of it based in our birth and our society and our culture, where we're born in that. And there's a lot of things that are really, there are a lot more things that are really just beyond our control and that control us. Yeah. I think that the finding of the places where you can break out of that boundary, Hmm. finding the places where you can make the difference even within it, I think is, is, is really kind of how we seek our call. Mm-hmm. And how we use the gifts that we were given and the status that we were given mm-hmm. and the privileges that we've been given. Much of this is just really luck of the draw for those who are leading this world right mm-hmm. now. I think the fact that we get to see it in this story, in this narrative, yeah. when we get to see someone who was born with this kind of privilege and this kind of calling to use it with integrity, mm-hmm. even when he's in prison even when he's self-sequestered in a cave, is a really wonderful story to tell. It's a wonderful story to read. It's a wonderful story to have in my soul because then it becomes an example for me. Absolutely. 
yeah, yeah. luck of the draw jamie fraser is born in when he's born yeah and so he is going to go to culloden no matter what yeah yeah but to go into it with the knowledge that he's going to lose to mm-hmm. go into it with the knowledge that he tried to stop it yeah to and go he into did it, everything he could yeah yeah it makes all the difference for him i think that's a good point to end on to be honest, the, the, the takeaway, okay. yes. <laughs> the lesson we can learn here today from James yeah. Fraser. <laughs> and the moral of the story is. <laughs> yeah. Wow. All right. So there are questions this week for those of you who fill out our wonderful survey questions so that we can keep, keep this conversation going. Well, the first one is what reflections do you have on Jamie's call? What else do you see in the story and what thoughts have come to mind since we've had this conversation? The second question, and there's only two this week, has to do with your own call. So we asked you in episode seven about reflecting on what your call and, and, and what you think about it. So here's the the kind of the twist in this one is reflect on a time when you had that calling, but the vocation wasn't necessarily clear, or that the opportunity to fulfill that call was taken away from you. How did you manage that? Mm-hmm. Were you able to adapt? Was there another call evident? How has your calling or your vocation changed over the years to match up that calling? So a couple more things um, before we finish. So first, we're going to be taking a little bit of a break. Both Terry and I have a load of stuff that needs to get done kind of in late August, early September, or actually all of September, to be honest. And so we are going to take a six-week break, um, and then season two uh, is going to start with episode number 11 on the 15th of October. What we do want to do is make sure that we've got the next season started prior to uh, Drums of Autumn coming out on Mm -hmm. Stars Network in November. 4th of November, I think, is the date. Yeah. Last time I saw. Yeah, so we want to at least get things started so that Mm -hmm. we can support y'all's watching of (laughs) the show uh, with some rather deep theological conversation uh, and to and to get a remark on Jamie's knees uh, because he'll be wearing a kilt again right he'll be wearing a kilt (laughs) so I'll I'll miss seeing his nice little round arse Um, but (laughs) but but we do get to see his knees (laughs) yeah But I'm very, I'm very much looking forward to seeing Drums of Autumn, and I'm glad that it's, it's going to be coming back in November. Uh, and so we will be up and running by then, and you'll get an opportunity to listen in. We will still keep engaged on Facebook. Do still uh, be watching that for questions and cool things that we'll be posting. But uh, with us both out of town and, and, and in different parts of the world, it's yeah. not going to be easy for us to get together for the next month or two. Yeah. But in the new season, um, we're going to shift focus a little bit. We'll have a few guests on to talk about different things um, around violence and rape in the series. We hope to have a conversation around race in Outlander as well. And then we'll also continue conversations around calling and vocation. And as Terry mentioned a bit earlier, around predestination and free will. So yeah, there's still plenty to do. So please stick with us and we'll be back on the 15th of October. Looking forward to it, guys. Great. 
See you guys later. That's it for this episode of Outlander Soul. Thanks for listening. We'd really appreciate it if you'd review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts as it helps people to find us. If you listen and like what you hear, please consider supporting us via Patreon. Just click on the Support Us button at outlandersoul.com and give whatever you can afford. Every little bit helps. Also, we'd love to hear your questions, your thoughts, your ideas. Part of the work that we're doing is gathering data on how fans interact with and value Outlander in their lives. And so we're interested in what you have to say. And we know Outlander fans have a lot to say. So please respond to our survey questions found on our website related to this episode or follow links you'll find on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr. You can also contact us by email at outlandersoulpodcast at gmail.com or through our website at outlandersoul.com. Thanks again, everyone. See you then. Bye.